chemistry is, well, technically, chemistry is the study of matter. But I prefer to see it as the study of change. Now, just, just think about this. Electrons, they change their energy levels. Molecules, molecules change their bonds. Elements, they combine and change into compounds. Well, that's, that's all of life, right? I mean, it's just, it's the constant, it's the cycle, it's solution, dissolution, just over and over and over. It is growth, then decay, then transformation. It is fascinating, really. I am so glad uh, to be back with you this week. Uh, before I came on to be your interim pastor, I'd made a couple of commitments that I had to uh, honor. Uh, I was really glad to do it. I enjoyed uh, speaking and being down in western Kentucky the last two of the last four weeks, but uh, uh, I don't have any more commitments on my calendar until the Lord calls uh, you to uh, a new pastor, and uh, so I am praying for you guys, because you have to put up with me for a while, uh, but uh, I'm praying for us that God would speak to us. I like that video. I, I, that, for those of you who are not familiar, that is from the series Breaking Bad. Now, parents, I do not want you to gather your kids, uh, set the whole family down to watch the series Breaking Bad. I'm not recommending that, uh, but the series is a, a very fascinating series, and it's about this teacher who experiences some events in his life, in the life of his families, and then makes some decisions that cause life change. So this is kind of setting up, foreshadowing what's going to happen uh, in, in the series. And what we learn from that series is life change can be and often is very, very negative. We all have things that have happened in our life that have been harmful, not helpful, and I think all of us know that life change can go that direction. But do we believe that life can change in the other direction? That things can get better? That, that something good can happen in our future? You know, that's the message of the church. If you don't know that, that is our message. The message of Jesus is that, that through Christ we can be a new person. Second Corinthians 5.17 says... In Christ, we are a new creation. All things, former things, are passed. These old things are passed away, and all things become new. Well, I hope that you believe that God can change everyone's life. Now, that's what this series has been about, about how our faith in Jesus Christ can change our lives completely. And if you were here a few weeks ago when we started the series, we talked about how faith in Jesus Christ not only changes our position before God and we know that we're going to heaven and we know that we're going to be forgiven of our sins eternally, but it also can change our life here and now. You remember Romans 8:29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That God wants to change us so that when people look at us, they don't just see us, they see Jesus in us. Then we talked about a couple of weeks ago about why we struggle so much changing. You know, because we all know, I think everybody here who's been in church more than like two or three times knows that we're supposed to be changing. But why has that change 
been such a struggle. And remember we talked about the Darth Vader, Superman type of deal, those two voices that speak into our life and we struggle with that. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is for those of us who we know we're saved and we know we're supposed to be changing, and we, and we kind of quit doing the stuff that really sets us back. You know, we're not kind of trapped in old sin. That Darth Vader voice is kind of diminished in our life. Why is it still hard for us? And to, today what we're going to talk about is something that I believe holds a lot of people back from transformation. And that is their past experience dominates their present thinking. Their past failure dominates their belief that something good can happen in the future. I believe the reason that some of you, and sometimes myself, sometimes I don't believe I can change because of the messes I've made in the past. Um, you don't know how to move past your past. You, you believe that God has forgiven you, but you have a hard time forgiving yourself. Uh, this might come as a surprise to you, but it's okay if you forgive yourself. You know, and, and God is okay with you forgiving yourself. I know a lot of you envision God as this diabolical creature up in heaven just waiting for you to mess up and go, <laughs> and they hit like the easy button to make your life miserable. And if you're not miserable enough because of what's going on right now, then he brings up stuff in your past. Hear me closely. God is not the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. God does not try to beat you down and bury you in your past mistakes. God wants to deliver you from that past. I hope that you know that God is not in the business of making you feel guilty your whole life. Now, before we move farther, I want you to understand that guilt can have a healthy role in our life. We talked about a couple weeks ago, remember me taking my daughter to have to confess and deal with, and oh my goodness, difficult, hard stuff. I wanted her to feel that guilt because I wanted to see life change in her. But, but, but here's what I found. Guilt rarely comes in perfect proportions. You know, uh, either... You know, you live as if nothing phases you in life. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I couldn't be wrong. It's not me, it's them. You live the blame game type of life. Or you live in this constant guilt. You always feel guilty, even over little stuff. And no matter how much you say you're sorry or how much you try to make amends or, or how much you try to do right, that guilt remains. And I want to confess I'm much closer to this. Man, I can feel guilty over stupid stuff for a long time, and I can hang on to it. And, and, and even when somebody has told me, look, it's not a big deal, or I forgive you, or even when I've confessed it to God, I have a way of wallowing in my own mistakes. Anybody else do that? Yeah. Uh, I wonder how many of you are like that. You know, you... I see some hands, but my guess is there's probably even more. You've been forgiven, but you live life like you're supposed to carry the burden forever. And you're punishing yourself. And you say things like, man, I just wish I'd have raised my kids better. Or, I wish I'd have done better in school. Or, I should have known better. Man, that divorce was all my fault. 
or I quit my job, and how stupid was that? And, and these things have brought some of you to the altar repeatedly, and you've asked for forgiveness, and you've tried to initiate reconciliation, but you're stuck in the spin cycle of pain and regret. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the Bible says about guilt and about somebody who seemed to be able to move beyond their past. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look in two places today. We're going to study two passages. We're going to study 2 Corinthians, New Testament, chapter 7. And then we're going to study 2 Samuel, Old Testament, chapter 12. So let's first look at 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. Now, do you know why there's a book called 2 Corinthians? Because there's a book called 1 Corinthians. That's why. Okay, this is deep stuff you're learning today. But those two books couldn't be farther apart. 1 Corinthians, I mean, honestly, is like Paul slapping around the church at Corinth. It's like he takes out this long ruler and says, stick your hand out, and he beats them to death. I mean, now, they were a bad church doing really bad stuff, and they needed to be taken behind the woodshed. But, I mean, he, he wears them out over and over. I mean, he wore out the, uh, the, the pear tree on the church at Corinth. You know, he just whips them over and over and over again. Well, 2 Corinthians couldn't be more different. 2 Corinthians, Paul is, is kind of embracing them again, and their relationship is being restored, and things are getting better. Now, apparently, someone in Paul's traveling band of missionaries had gone to the church at Corinth and was bringing back a report to Paul. And this person, the Bible says, he told Paul, us, his group, of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me. And you can almost hear Paul saying, Y'all still love me. I'm so glad you still love me. He told me of that, and, and I rejoiced greatly because of this. Then the next verse, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. And boy, Paul's a great friend, isn't he? <laughs> even if I made you sad, I don't regret it. And then it's almost like the Holy Spirit kind of sticks Paul in the side and says, Wait a minute, Paul. He says, Well, I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a little while. Then verse 9, he says, as it is, I rejoice. I don't rejoice because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, Paul says, I'm glad that, that you changed. Now, your Bible might use the word grief. It might use the word regret. It might use the word sorrow. It's kind of all the same concept here, okay? So whatever version you're using, kind of similar concept. But then verse 10 for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar or a preacher to figure this out. The Holy Spirit lives within you if you're saved, and it is easy to know what this verse is teaching. This verse teaches that, that, that there is good guilt and bad guilt. Some guilt is healthy, some is not. Now, let's break these two types of guilt down. The first is a godly sorrow, a, uh, a sorrow that says, God, I'm sorry that I've hurt you. I'm sorry for the pain that I've caused others. Would you please forgive me? Now, this sorrow, sorrow leads to repentance. It brings salvation, and it leaves no regret. How do I know that? Because the Bible teaches that. I mean, that's exactly what it says. So when you have godly sorrow, you, you see change, and you have actually what happens is this godly sorrow, this pain for an instant, relieves regret. You see that? But then he talks about in this very same verse that there is a worldly sorrow 
This worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry for how it's affecting me. It made me look bad. It made me feel worse. It made my life complicated. It's very inward and self-centered, and, and it's very depressing. And this sorrow brings death. Now, before I go any farther, I want you to understand. Just because somebody says they're sorry doesn't mean they're sorry. You know that's true in your own life. You've probably had times where you said, man, I'm really sorry I messed up, and really all you wanted was off the hook. All you wanted was to make sure you were still taken care of. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow has a different outcome. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is not the feeling They feel the exact same. Guilt is guilt. Shame is shame. Grief is grief. It feels the same. But what's it pushing you to? Is it pushing you to God or is it pushing you away from God? Is your grief causing you to never get in your Bible because I can't get in my Bible. I just feel so guilty every time I get there. Or do you get in the Bible and say, oh God, I need to hear from you. I need to know how I can make it right. Does it keep you away from church? You know, I don't want to go to church. The roof might fall in on me. Or does it push you? to God. What, what does it do? I hear people all the time, they'll come to me and say, well, preacher, I don't know if I'm having godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, I'm, you, there, there are times that when I feel down, I, I, I hate to admit this, you know, I mean, but, but sometimes I feel down and I eat. I know none of y'all can relate to that probably ever. That's not godly feeling down. You know, I mean, if I feel down and I say, you know, I need to go to the gym, that's a better feeling down for me. There's a difference between those two things. Uh, Where does it lead you to? Godly and worldly. Godly sorrow leads you to God. A lot of times it's the exact same emotion. But the outcome is vastly different. Uh, My goal for today is for us to learn how to move from living in worldly sorrow to being liberated through godly sorrow. Now, to do that, we're going to look at an Old Testament character. Uh, uh, He's the biggest character in the Old Testament. If I ask you who that was, as Christians, we would probably throw out, you know, maybe Moses or Elijah or Abraham. But if you're a Jewish person, it's David. You go to Israel, they don't have buildings about Moses and Abraham, but everything's got David's name on it, everything. You know, and so David is huge in the Old Testament. And David's a great character. I mean, I love David in the Old Testament. I mean, Dave, David writes psalms, and so he just loves God, and he's this faithful shepherd, and so he's an outdoorsman, and he's a mighty warrior because he defeats Goliath. And he's, you know, I, I, I love David. He's one of my favorite characters. Uh, and he's so great that the Bible describes him in the Old Testament, and by the way, and in the New Testament, as a man after God's own heart. It's important that you remember this later on because he calls him a man after God's own heart in the New Testament, okay? So he describes him this way, but, but for those of y'all who don't know, David, he's very flawed. Um, David's king of Israel, things are going good. The kingdom's expanding and people are starting to get in his ear and say, David, 
you don't need to go to battle because you get hurt, things are going to go bad. And so David stays back, and instead of going into battle, he starts praying for those who are in battle. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is up on his palace, and in my mind, he's probably praying for the troops, praying for the expansion of God's kingdom, maybe just enjoying God. I just want to tell you, by the way, be careful when things are going good in your life because that's when Satan will work the hardest. Some of my hardest temptations in my life have come not when things were down and depressed. They've come when things were going well. You know, take heed, the Bible says, those of you who think you stand lest you fall. You know, in moments of good times, weaknesses can come. David's up here maybe praising the Lord, and while he's up on his uh, palace rooftop, he looks down into the courtyard, and there's a woman who is bathing. Now, David should have bounced his eyes at that moment and recognized that was not his to behold, but he noticed that she was beautiful, and he sent one of his servants and said, I want to know more about that gal. Comes to find out that that gal is one of his soldiers, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. David knows what's right and wrong, but he calls for Bathsheba to come to him. They have relations and... She goes home. David thinks, who shouldn't have done that? But nobody knows until Bathsheba comes back to David and says, I'm pregnant. We got a problem. Uriah's been gone long enough. David can do the math. They knew how long, you know, pregnancies last. And he said, man, I'm in a mess. And what I do, what I do. And so he calls for Uriah. He says, I tell you what I'll do. I'll do exactly what every hum, human being has tried to do ever since the foundation of the world. I'm going to try to cover my tracks and get away with it. And so he calls Uriah back from the battlefield and says, Uriah, you're a faithful soldier. You need to just spend some time with your wife. And Uriah has that band of brothers thing going on in his heart. And he says, I can't spend time with her. All of my brothers are out in the field. It wouldn't be right for me. I'm your servant, king, but as long as you have me here, I will sleep at the steps of the palace. I will not go home. David knows he's in a mess, and he has to come up with plan B. Well, plan B is plan bad, and he decides that to tell the commanders of his army, I want you to send Uriah to the heat of the battle, and when things are at their hottest, I want you to pull back and let Uriah fight by himself. In essence, David signs Uriah's death sentence and, and Uriah dies in battle. Well, David takes Bathsheba as his wife um, and uh, she is pregnant and, and then the, the pregnancy, obviously, uh, uh, a, a baby is born. Now, just before we go any farther, I want to take a time out to just say this. For those of you who have gone through unexpected pregnancies, male, female, parents, grandparents, I know how this deal works. There's a lot of pain at first. Surprise, confusion, fear. But you know how long it takes for, for pain to turn to joy? About one breath. That's about how long. When that baby's born, Papaw becomes Papaw. You know, and life changes. Well, that's, that's been true since the history of humanity, that we do wrong, God brings good out of the wrong. Praise the Lord, he's a wonderful God. And this baby is born. But if you don't know the story, David and Bathsheba's first child was very, very sick. Um, so sick that they both knew something was really wrong. But David starts begging God for the child to be saved, for the child to live, for his 
sin not to have bearing on this child. But God chooses not to heal that baby, and that baby dies. And it's in the midst of this story of someone who could have lived the rest of their life with guilt because he knew, I killed this lady's husband. Probably in his mind, he could have connected the dots and said, I killed this baby. Somebody who could have lived there moved beyond. So for those of y'all who could live there with something you've done, let's look at what happens with David and let's real quickly see how we can move beyond, okay? All right. First thing that I want us to see in this passage is he accepted what he couldn't change. You want to move beyond your sin and your failure? You got to accept what you can't change. 2 Samuel 12, verse 21, David has... David's been praying, he's been seeking God, he's been asking God for help, and now all of a sudden the baby dies and the servants would think, oh my goodness, David's going to crash, he's done. But, but instead David has the opposite. David gets up and he cleans himself off and he eats food and, and the servant comes to him and he says, what gives? What's this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died you arose and ate food. And then in the next verse he said, David replies and says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious, and maybe the child will live. But then he says in verse 23, but now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Guys, don't miss that. David accepted the fact that there was nothing he could do to change what had happened. And some of us must embrace this truth as well. What good does grieving over something that is gone do you? You can't go back and make your kids little again. You can't erase the rap sheet that you've already incurred. You can't take back an unkind word. You can't undo an affair. You can't change these things. And you should not wallow over something in the past. You, you just shouldn't wallow there. Uh, and some people do just that. They mourn constantly over something that can't be changed. And if that's you, it, let me ask you this question. Is your mourning over your faults bringing life or death? Straightforward question. Is mourning over what you've done constantly delivering you? You can't undo what you've done. If you screwed your life up, you did it. Accept it. But have you asked for forgiveness? Well, yeah. Okay. Ha ha have you made amends if you've wronged somebody? Well, yeah, I've been trying for a lot. Have you tried to do the best you can since that point forward or from this point forward? Well, yeah, I'm trying. When you've done all you can do, you got to move on. There's my message to you today. When you've done all you can do, you got to move on. A lot of problems linger when people have blown it big time because they don't know where to turn. They don't know how to move on. They don't know where to move on to. And that's because some people turn inward. You know, they say things like, you know, oh, I can't believe this happened. Oh, I feel so badly about this. Oh, I'm, I'm such a miserable person. And their focus is completely on themselves. This sorrow will lead you to death. If you're guilty and focus on yourself, it will lead you to death. Some people turn outward. 
You know, you know, they turn to other people. Would you please validate my existence? Would you please tell me that I'm not that bad a person? Would you please let me know that I'm okay? And they turn to other people and or probably and and they turn to something outside themselves to drink uh, or, or to, to take in so that they'll numb their pain and numb their mind and try to get out of it. Well, does that sorrow bring life or death? That sorrow will lead to death, but there's a better place to turn and that's to look upward. We look upward and, and we see that God is a loving God. Notice what David does. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, it says, David arose from the earth, he washed and anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went to the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. What'd he do? He got up and went to church. In the middle of his lowest time, he turned to God. And if we would do that, God would be the source of strength and peace during times of pain. Listen, I'm not saying what burdens you is going to quit being important if you come to church. It'll still be important. I'm not even saying that God's going to fix what you've messed up. You know, I mean, if you've had an affair, guys, gals, God might not fix your marriage. Here's what it is. You know, if, if you're deep in debt, you know, so much so that you've lost your, your, your house, you lost your credit, you might not ever get back to the place that you were at. If, if you've done drugs and lost your job, you may have to scrape by on minimum wage just to make it. If you've hurt somebody, they might still hurt. If you hurt yourself, you might have to live with your consequences. If you've limited your options, they may always be limited. But if you turn to God, I want to tell you, He will give you a peace where you are. He might not give you your plan. He might not fix things the way you want them fixed. But if you turn to God, he will move and give you something that the Bible calls a peace that passes understanding. A few weeks ago, I talked to you all about that big P word, that predestination word. And I said, people who think they got this figured out are nuts, are crazy. You know, but I want to tell you, there's a mystery much bigger than the free will, predestination, God sovereignty debate. A much bigger mystery, and it's this. Why in the world does God still love us in spite of our mess? I hadn't figured this one out. I'm not even close. Because, I mean, God spoke, and the world came into existence. He could easily say, done with y'all, speak, and here's a new group of people. Hope y'all do better. He could easily do that. It would be much less complicated than putting up with our mess. And yet God, in his great, faithful, wonderful love, says, I know you've blown it big time. I know you've messed up. I know you've hurt people. I know you've let people down. I know you've let me down. But I still love you. I love the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. What a beautiful song. It comes from a passage in Lamentations chapter 3. The chorus does. Jeremiah is lamenting over the sin of Israel and over the consequences of those sins. And they are getting ready to get drug off to exile in Babylon. And in the midst of this, Jeremiah gets this fresh touch from God when God says, I love you. And he says, morning by morning, new mercy I see. Great is your faithfulness, God. I don't know why God loves me like he does. I hadn't figured it out. You might, oh, well, it's because you get up and preach. 
Well, I can guarantee it's not that. Because sometimes I like to be liked, and I like my glory to look just as good as his glory, and I guarantee you God hates that. You know, and sometimes I get up here when, when, when I'm angry, and then I come up here and I'm doing fine. And I know God doesn't like a phony. And I hadn't figured out why God puts up with me and he loves me like he does, but I'm so grateful he does. And I'm so grateful since the moment that I trusted him. And I'll be honest, not everybody can say this, but I can say this. From the moment that I trusted him, I have known that he loves me. I've just known it. Man, do you know that God loves you? Trust his faithfulness. He is a faithful God. He has said, I will cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And whatever the burden, the guilt, the heaviness, the regret that you're carrying, you must learn to give it to God. Now, how does God bring comfort to David? Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Now, don't misread this passage. Could God ever replace the first son that died? Never. If you've lost a child, guys, I, there's nothing harder. I know. I've watched families. I don't think you ever get over that completely. It gets different, but you never get over. I, I understand. Could the pain and loss of losing the first child ever go away completely? I don't think so. Does a second child make it all better? Not necessarily. But what did God do here? It says he loved him in that last passage. And God didn't change the past, but he brought David something new. Guys, every season of your life is an opportunity to serve God. Every one. Uh, sorry, my voice is about to go. I can tell you about a man at Edgewood, an addict, who lost a marriage and a job and truthfully financial security for the rest of his life. But God gripped his heart and he let go of the past and he hung on to the fact that God could still use him and now all of a sudden he led a program helping addicts through 12-step programs. You know, somebody who gets divorced and blows it big time and it's their fault might be able to help walk people through their divorce. God uses everything in your life for his glory. Don't think God is done with you. God is not done with you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God is not done with you. You may not go back to the way it was, but God can bring beauty from ashes. Last thing I tell you is to focus on what is left, not what is lost. The problem with many of us is we remember the things that we should forget. You know, we drive looking in our rearview mirror. Some of you have rearview mirrors the size of Texas, and you look toward the future through a peephole. You know, I mean, that's a problem in your life. You're living with everything that's gone. I want to tell you guys, if you're still breathing, there's still a future. You might not have the majority of your life left, but you can focus on the majority uh, on what is left. That's your choice. That, that's yours. 
That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it on my own. Heaven forbid any of us do. None of us are good enough. We haven't made it on our own. But one thing I do, and you need to learn, Paul's saying, you need to learn from this. I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. (sighs) Guys, y'all know that our past failures can dominate our mindset. Am I telling y'all anything you don't know there? You know, I, I, I've been on 442 diets in my lifetime. I have lost my entire body weight three times. I found it three and a half. You know, it is. And here's the problem. Even when I'm doing good, you know what ends up happening in my mind? And just before long, you'll blow it. That's what I'm... I am an unashamed Kentucky football fan. Y'all know that by now, right? Okay, I I love Kentucky football, and uh, I know, I don't know if he's here today, but I know one of our brothers in here played for UK, and I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. But as a UK football fan, and I drink the Kool-Aid every year, we're going to be better. We're going to be better. We're going to win. And as a UK football fan, every year I do this, but when we start doing good, I always start waiting for the other shoe to drop. Why? Because of the past. I'll never forget my best friend growing up was a George, Georgia Bulldog fan. And we were about to beat Georgia Bulldogs, and we had a field goal to beat them at the very end of the game. And that field goal was coming, and I think the kicker, if I remember it right, kicked the ball into the back of our lineman's head. I still remember that. And then I remember Steve Spurrier. Ooh. I remember Steve Spurrier when he was playing at Florida, coaching at Florida. And, and it was back in the days when they didn't even count, you know, uh, you didn't go to overtime. It was still ties. This is how long they've been beating up on us. But anyhow, it was still ties. And we had them fourth and goal from the 20-something yard line. We got them just a few seconds. And I thought even Spurrier and all of his brashness would kick a field goal and try to take a tie instead of losing but he goes for it on fourth and whatever and the quarterback drops back he i think it's danny Werfel throws the pass to chris doring and at the last play they beat us and the jackson and the streak continues and then i remember the worst of all guy morris was coaching for us and we were playing at lsu and it was three or four seconds left to go on the game clock and we're on our own 25 yard line and and, and there's no way that they can beat us, you know, and, and, and there's no way they can score. It's so bad that the players dump Gatorade on the coach's head. <sighs> and they throw a 75-yard touchdown pass. Now that we're 4-1 and one and I'm getting ready to go to the Auburn game this Thursday, Lord willing. And if any of you have real good tickets, talk to me. <laughs> there's a part of me that's waiting for the shoe to drop. Why? Because I'm thinking about the past and not thinking about the future. You know, as much as I'm looking forward to Thursday night's game, there's another game that I'd love to have attended. The 1929 Rose Bowl. The California Bears were playing the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, the rambling wreck from Georgia Tech. It's a low-scoring game. I mean, this is back in the day of leather helmets. Brutal, hard game at this time. Brutal game now, Brutal, hard game at this time. They fought the whole first half, and uh, uh, California Bears were leading by three to nothing. Georgia Tech wasn't moving the ball at all. They had the ball down in their own side of the end zone. 
Cal has this all-American linebacker, Roy Regals, dominating the game. Toward the end of the half, just about a minute to go in the first half, Regals hits a Georgia Tech linebacker so hard that the ball uh, just glances away out of the running back's hands. Regals is dazed. He gets up, and he's the first one to the ball. He grabs the ball, and in his confusion, he starts running the wrong way. I mean, the Georgia Tech coach is is yelling, Go, Regals, go! The Cal coach is yelling, Somebody stop him! He runs 65 yards to the other end of the field before a defensive back snags him on about the two-yard line. Georgia Tech punches the ball in and goes ahead 7-3. to three. Team falls in at halftime. Coach talks to them, and at the end of his speech, he says, all right, everybody who started in the first half, you're starting in the second half. Get back out there and win this football game. Everybody piles out except for Regals, and the story is told that he's over just devastated in the corner. Sitting there crying, and the coach goes up to him. And the story is told that he says, Regals, he grabs him by the leather helmet, looks him in the eye and says, Regals, you're my player. You made a mistake. You are forgiven. Now get back out there and win that football game. (laughs) This is the part of the story that's never told. Regals dominated the second half. Cal went on to an easy victory. People who watched the game says he played better in the second half than he had ever played in his life. Where'd he come from? Forgiveness and a second half. You might not have a second half left, but there's still time on the clock. Don't give up. I want to leave you with this, and I know when I give you my last note, y'all put stuff away. I'm praying that your favorite lunch place is full if you do that. <laughs> Listen to me. This is too good to miss because this is what God does with this story. Remember, Christ came into the world to save you from sin, and we learned the story of Christ in Matthew, Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. In the very first chapter of the New Testament, we find the lineage of Adam to Jesus. And in the middle of this, you know, the he begot so-and-so, he was the father of so-and-so, he was the father of so-and-so. In the middle of this, it says, And Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. And this is not usual in the lineage. He says he was the father of by the wife of Uriah. Guys, don't miss that. God can take our mess and he can make it something beautiful. Still time on the clock. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven. Move forward in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word today. I pray, God, that you would use these words to encourage your people. 
And God, if there's somebody here today that's completely overwhelmed and believes that you can't use them or love them, God, I pray that you would convince their heart differently. Lord, you use us not because we're good. You use us because you're great. You forgive us not because we deserve it. You forgive us because that's who you are. And God, I praise you, Lord, that you alone are are the one who can give second chances, and I praise you, Lord, that you do. God, I pray that your people would rest in the fact that morning by morning, new mercy is available. God, I ask you to speak at this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a minute, we're going to stand together. And, and to be honest with you, uh, I, I know this is just what, in a lot of your lives, you do before you're done. But God, I believe, wants to do something in some people's lives. You know, I believe there's some people here that God wants to make a big radical change in their heart and life. He wants you to move forward, to look forward to what he has, not the pain that you've caused or the mess you've made. You see, he died to forgive you of that. He wants you to live in that forgiveness. Maybe you're here today and you have never, ever received the forgiveness of Jesus. The forgiveness of Jesus starts with sorrow, with guilt over your sin, and it leads you to salvation and trust in Christ. I'm going to ask you to do something today. If you've never, ever asked Christ into your heart to save you, ever, I'm not talking about going to church when you were little. I'm not talking about taking communion. I'm not talking about even getting wet. I'm talking about giving your heart to Christ and said, I can't make it on my own. I need Jesus. If you've never given your heart and life to Jesus today, then today I'm going to encourage you in just a minute when we stand together and sing. I want you to come forward, and I want you to do so. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to come and talk to me, okay? Not because I'm the one with the answer, but because you don't really know what you're doing probably, and I'd like to help you out. You know, if you'll come talk to me, I'd love for you to do that. Maybe you're here today, and, and truthfully, you know, you, you have wallowed in your mess for way too long maybe today you just want to come to the altar and say God I'm sorry see it's just as much sin to wallow in your mess and not accept the forgiveness of God as it is to commit the mess in the first place God I'm sorry that I haven't trusted your forgiveness maybe you're here today and you just want to come take communion and want to say thank you Lord that your mercy endures forever maybe you're here today and you haven't been baptized you know uh, these baptismal waters should be flowing every week in this church with people who are saying, I want everyone to know that I trust Jesus and not myself. If you're here and as a believer, not as a baby, but as a believer, have, have never followed the Lord in baptism where you're saying, I trust Jesus, I'd encourage you to come today. Trust him. Maybe here today you'd like to be a part of this church. I'd encourage you to come. Love for you to come. We'll tell you how you can do that. We're going to stand right now. We're going to sing. We're not going to sing 16 verses. We're going to sing two or three verses. If you need to come, won't you come right now on this first?